Welcome, everyone, to the Food, Farms, and Chefs radio show with restaurant industry author Kevin Wilson, highly acclaimed chef Gene Blum, and food photojournalist Amaris Pollock. Join them as they interview the biggest names in the restaurant industry, tell you about the latest food trends, and give you recipes and cooking tips, too. So let's get the show started. Welcome to our listeners around the world via the podcast. Our listeners on our FM station in New York and our listeners on our two Philadelphia radio stations. It's Tuesday evening drive time for you. On today's show, we are giving you the dish on our guests, Herman Mihalich of PA Distillers Guild and Dad's Hat Rye Whiskey and Eli Culp of High Street Hospitality Group. Amorous Pollock, introduce us to your fabulous guests. Hey, everyone. I want to introduce you to Herman Mihalik. He is the founder and one of the co-founder and um, the treasurer of PA Distillers Guild, as well as the co-owner of Dad's Hat Rye Whiskey. Herman, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks very much for uh, having me on. No problem. Um, so I'm excited to bring you on because this isn't just one distillery. I mean, you obviously own a distillery, but this isn't just one distillery. This is a collaboration of distilleries that work together. Um, now, you founded this uh, back in, I believe, 2014, and you you are a group that is specifically dealing with craft spirits in Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's correct. It, we've... Um... The organization started back then. It, it was kind of a small and, and you know kind of creeping along, getting getting our act together. Um, Robert Robert Castle, um, uh, currently from uh, from New Liberty Distilling, has played a very instrumental role in that. And now with um, um, uh, Robert, myself, and uh, Mark uh, Meyer from Wiggle and uh, in Pittsburgh, we were kind of the executive committee, uh, helping to manage the uh, the, the guild. And it's uh, it, we took a little bit of a hit the past couple of years during the pandemic because so many of our members were really kind of focused on being sure that they survived the two you know the, the pandemic. But so we're we're going through a bit of a relaunch right now. But um, it's it's interesting because when in 2009 when we started, uh, I think we were the fourth whiskey the fourth distillery uh, overall in Pennsylvania at the time, and now there are literally dozens and dozens of distilleries all across the state of all sizes. And making lots of, of, of different kinds of products, and so it's quite an exciting time. And and I think the guild is um, do, is going to is well placed to help uh, coordinate uh, around the industry and and represent our interests uh, vis-a-vis our uh, the big the stakeholders we have in you know in particular in the state of Pennsylvania and outside the state. And <clears throat> how did you and Robert Robert Castle like begin? Like how did you come about creating the the PA Distillers Guild, like, you know, the reason why you founded it? Well, as you can imagine, uh, you know, the alcohol industry is a rather uh, complicated one uh, to operate in. And it's, um, you know, we have, we obviously depend a lot on the kind of regulations that take place in in, uh, Harrisburg and in Washington. And uh, so sharing experiences and sharing knowledge about the our operating environment was really the first impetus, you know, the fact that there were uh, since 2009, a fair amount of changes made uh, in the legislative and legal environment for our industry, and so just you know, started off as just guys sort of 
you know, people just sharing each other's experiences and saying, hey, let's get together somewhere so we can discuss these. And I think it sort of, you know, sort of blossomed after that as a, as a, almost like a survival technique for everybody to understand, you know, the changing environment and the, and, and the understanding the um, rather sometimes complex regulatory environment in which we operate. So that was the first impetus. And that's still part of an uh, important part of what we do is is maintaining a, a knowledge base and an experience base uh, in that in the environment side, particularly the legal and regulatory environment. But it's now, and particularly as you know, looking forward, it'll be increasingly also a uh, way for us to promote ourselves as a group, both to Pennsylvania consumers and to the outside world. And obviously, that's you know imperative in in the environment that we're in right now. Um, <clears throat> with everything that's been going on and all the changes, uh, now when how do how do you obtain more membership? Like, do you reach out to other members who who own distilleries and you know let them know like, hey, we have PA Distillers Guild and we have all these you know ways that we're helping to build a community of distillers to help cross promote and you know help each other out. How do you how do you gain their their members the members? You know, we I think it's mostly by well, of course, you know, reaching out and inviting them in, and and uh, again, pre pre pandemic, we had a couple of very um, I think very fruitful uh, events where we would we actually went to Harrisburg as a as a as a group and met with uh, regular you know the regulatory folks, some of the legislators who were involved in the process, and and they got a chance to see firsthand that we were able to expose them to. The people in Pennsylvania who can influence the uh, their their business environment. So I think you know by deeds and, and executing things that uh, that were valuable in uh, creating information that was valuable to them was the first uh, step. And uh, and then now we're we're taking more steps. One of the things we're doing right now, for example, is we have um, uh, we've launched an economic impact study. Uh, we're working with uh, uh, Delaware Valley Delaware Valley University who's doing a, a very thorough uh, analysis of the economic impact of the distillers in Pennsylvania. So, you know, the raw materials were buying, people were hiring, you know, uh, rents were paying, all that kind of stuff, and collecting that all up in one report so that when we go and talk to stakeholders, whether it's regulators or whether it's uh, legislators or, or people in the outside world saying, hey, we're becoming a significant economic force uh, and we're actually a, a, an engine for economic growth, in many parts of the state, so it's that's a way to let people know that we're, you know, that we matter, and that you know when they make uh, if they if they were to make changes in our uh, regulatory environment, it could have a uh, an impact on our uh, on our businesses, sometimes positive, but also sometimes potentially negative. So you know, and so by going to our fellow dis distillers and saying, hey, look, you know, these are the kind of things we're doing that to benefit. Everybody who's playing in the, in this uh, environment, uh, I think, is a way to to, uh, to demonstrate the value that working together can bring, and to and to have ourselves that, uh, uh, perceived by the state as a group who contributes something important to the state. Now, on top of the fact that you're doing all of that and you are, you know, adding value as far as economic resources and economic um, impacts are concerned, like you also, one of your goals I saw was to, you know, work with local farms or whatnot to, you know, bring their products in. So you're keeping everything hyper local or at least very local. 
um, for the different distillers that are, you know, working within your, your membership. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that a lot of our um, uh, distillers across the state are doing is that, you know, that's part of this economic impact is, and that's why we're working with Del Valley University. They, they have a very strong agricultural uh, uh, background so that, you know, plugging in the importance of connecting with local farms and you know, not only from the quality of the product, but also but just from the economic impact it has and, and our ability to, you know, relate directly to the people who are providing our raw materials. It's a great source of, of pride, but also it's a great source of, of developing the quality of products that we want to present to our customers. So it, it's, a, it's a win-win for everybody, you know, partic- you know the, the grains that we're buying locally, um, are ones that you know we can we you know we're able to um, work with the farmers to uh, provide a, a sustainable pricing to them, and uh, and in return we can work with them to also be sure that uh, you know and they'll be uh, be able to provide the, the precise quality of product that we need. Now I would be remiss if I didn't actually mention the fact that this wasn't the first this isn't the first time that you've you know gathered together as as a group within your membership to play a role in, in what's going on, you know, in society. Um, you've also been part of uh, the, the reason why we had to, you know, restock our everyone with hand sanitizer. You had an effect on that as well. Yeah, we, um, that, was, that was a really a great uh, initiative uh, that, that Rob Castle had. Uh, the idea there was well there were several distilleries across the state who independently worked with uh, their local authorities uh, making uh, you know high alcohol uh, hand sanitizers and uh, what we did as a group as a guild is that we went to the state of Pennsylvania and said hey particularly in the early early months of the pandemic it was it was a bit chaotic we were getting phone calls from everybody saying hey could you you know provide us with alcohol for the uh, for hand sanitizers for example <clears throat> and it was it was hard for us to sort of sort through it. So uh, what we decided to do is to work with the state of Pennsylvania and where they, they would purchase uh, alcohol uh, for use in hand sanitizers and hand sanitizers formulated from the guild. And then um, and we, would, we would source across several. In fact, we had about eight or nine distilleries across the state participating in the supply chain. And then that way we would ship it to the state of Pennsylvania. And then they, through the Department of Health, could decide where best to deploy, um, you know, the hand sanitizer, whether it was, you know, uh, senior, senior citizens facilities or first responders. We felt that they were in a better better position to evaluate where to best service those things rather than, you know, we were, it was really getting hard to decide. We were even getting calls from people who were clearly, uh, you know, I would say, you know, profiteers, you know, saying, oh, you know, we're, we're from so-and-so group, we want to buy hand sanitizer, and it turns out, it was just somebody who wanted to buy it and flip it and sell it, and uh, you know, to someone else. So, we it, we felt by working with the state that way it was a way to provide our service to and have it managed into uh, the most needy uh, people first. Now, how did that um, impact the bottom line for all of the people who, like, for yourself and um, for New New Liberty and for um, everybody that has a distillery who was producing? It was we, what we did is we provided them a uh, we did cost estimate with the state and said okay this is you know what we think the cost is going to be and we we uh, negotiated with them a, a fixed price per unit uh, that would be paid to cover uh, the uh, the um, uh, the cost at the distilleries uh, so, so that you know they would 
it helped uh, it helped maintain employment, particularly for some of the smaller uh, distilleries who participated for them, uh, and uh, so it was able to keep their employees paid and, and in house and working uh, by the um, with the money that was coming from uh, the purchase of those. Um, so it was it was kind of win win for everybody. It helped the distilleries get through a very difficult time for them, and it also we were able to provide the hand sanitizer that the state was uh, using to distribute to uh, across the, their uh, their footprint. Now, with everything that you're, you know, the PA Distillers Guild is doing in order to help, you know, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania with, you know, and also the individual distilleries, um, I feel like part of uh, what you guys have been doing and, you know, your labor of love of helping everything, you know, helping everybody out and getting like your, you know, the names out and getting your your rye whiskeys out Um you you definitely caught the eye of the government, and you brought on uh, PA former PA Labor and Industry Sec, uh, Secretary Kathy, Kathy Mandarin. Mandarino, um, yeah. Yeah, and she became your executive director. Now, how has she played a role in growing? You know, your your brand, growing the the knowledge that you're out there and bringing more distilleries in. Well, Kathy's main role right now has been to um, help organize the economic impact study and our uh, soon-to-come rollout to uh, to try to reach out to more distilleries. So, but right now, you know, and one of the things, as I mentioned before, is being able to go to the distillers who are currently not part of the guild and say, hey, look, here's a deliverable. We, you know, this economic impact study is going to be something that is going to help everybody up in the marketplace and in Harrisburg understand you know the scope of what we're doing and because she she brings a, a lot of experience uh, understanding um, how to administrate a large uh, large information large uh, uh, teams and uh, and you know just brings a wealth of information about Harrisburg too to uh, to help us you know push that message into Harrisburg and then leverage that back to uh, to bring more members into the into the team to help build uh, the credibility and build the size of the guild itself now, aside from building the credibility and the size of the guild, uh, what else does the PA Distillers Guild have going on, you know, for people like myself who are not within that membership? Um, <laughs> I don't own a distillery and I don't foresee myself owning one, but I certainly love, you know, indulging in whiskeys and bourbons and vodkas. Um, do you ever hold events for that, you know, kind of cross-promote where, you know, multiple uh, members in, in within the group show up and you know have tastings or or you know it's a collab. Do you have any collaborative um, events that you host? Well, again, we you know the it's been um, it's been tough for the past couple of years because obviously you know tasting events are pretty intimate contact with everybody, so we've not been able to do much of that. We have paired with uh, in the past the the, the, um, the PLCB puts on in, in both in Pittsburgh and in Philadelphia um, a fine spirits, uh, fine whiskey and spirits festival every year. And um, this past year, even though it was still a bit restrained this past, this past fall, we were able to put a state, they put aside an area for uh, Pennsylvania uh, distillers to kind of give us a bit more of a weight in the face of the big guys uh, as a place where to identify with consumers, hey, here's the, you know, uh, to kind of put, make a mark for us. <laughs> Pardon me. On the um, at those shows, 
other than that, the, probably the next steps are going to be more linked to the virtual presence. Um, now I'm going to have, I'm going to have at the end, um, you tell us where to find the PA Distillers Guild. Um, and you know, Gene will, Gene will, you know, sum that up for, for us. But, um, I want to also mention the fact that I didn't know that one of the things in PA is you can only, um, sell your liquor. So you individually as dad's, dad's hat, um, rye whiskey can only go to 10 up to 10 pa wine and goods stores to sell your your whiskey at no that, that, that's not true um that, that, that we have the option of doing that and, and that is actually quite a valuable option for some of the smaller distillers in the state who uh, frankly you know uh would not be able to cover the hundreds of stores that the pennsylvania state liquor system uh, operates we're actually, uh, that's that, for example, we're in something like 450 stores across the state. Oh, okay. But, yeah, it's, if you're a smaller distiller, a very small regional distiller, and you sell most of your product at your distillery, which a lot of the a lot of distillers do, um, but if you want to have the option to get, uh, to get into distribution, the Pennsylvania state system uh, says that um, if you want to, uh, you can deliver it to 10 stores in your area, and they'll put it on the shelf in those 10 stores. Okay. So it's that's actually a pretty nice win for, for smaller distilleries because they, you know, when we ship to the state of Pennsylvania now, uh, we're shipping, you know, we do, uh, you know, hundreds of cases uh, a month, and there are smaller distillers for whom that would not be really achievable or even they probably wouldn't even be interested. They'd rather sell it what they have at their location. So <clears throat> I, I, right now the, the PLCB actually offers a pretty flexible accessibility for Pennsylvania distillers, I think. That's good. Cause I the, I saw like a little notation that said something like they're only allowed to sell up to ten so uh, in ten locations, and I was like, that's very limiting. So I'm glad that I was like, that that little side notation um was was not correct because you know obviously you know you would need to uh, gain access to the more liquor stores that you're in, the better, especially if no. I mean, I mean, that's hat as a brand is um, the third largest selling rye whiskey in Pennsylvania. So, you know, we're, we're in, you know, hundreds of stores and, and, and we sell quite a bit of product in Pennsylvania. And that's because, you know, of the, uh, you know, being in present in so many of those stores across the state. And speaking of dad's hat, Gene has some questions for you. Okay. Well, first of all, just you know, thank you for a great synopsis of the PA Distillers Guild. Are there opportunities or options for members of the media or for people who are involved in organizations like the Pennsylvania Whiskey Society or anything to, you know, get involved in the guild or an option to, you know, in the future possibly attend meetings and really help promote this great growing trend of whiskeys and rye and you know, scotches and bourbons, well, you know, let's go with bourbons and rise in, in America. You know, do you foresee some opportunities? That's an interesting question because we, we're we starting to develop a, um, a category of uh, members, as we call associate members, mostly aimed at suppliers to the industry. So you know, people who supply bottles and corks and labels, they're interested in having uh, access to uh, the group and in a structured way so that we, you know, they would be uh, available to, uh, they'd be able to contact people in the guild to discuss what they can offer for them. 
and we've had other you know service providers or experts uh, as associate members. But we haven't thought about let's say you know uh, how we might interact with uh, you know the Philadelphia Whiskey uh, Society or the uh, the Pittsburgh uh, Friends of uh, Friends of Whiskey, I think it's called. So they, you know, yeah. there are various groups like that across the state. That's a very interesting notion. I haven't really thought about that, but that's a an interesting suggestion. I'd like I'll have to talk to uh, the rest of the group about that and see how we might. Because you're right, it'd be a great way to engage with people who are interested in what we're doing. Uh, and but we haven't given that good thought. So Gene, that's a that's an excellent uh, suggestion. I'll have to think about that. Well, thank you. You know, I love that you're doing this economic impacts statement you know and we'll get into it in a minute a little bit what, what i know about that hat. but as a delval person who understands what the university is and the agricultural ties to it you know people don't realize that your particular brand dad's hat rye how rye whiskey came about i mean rye whiskey pennsylvania makes some of the best rye in the nation if not the best rye in the nation and again you know the rye whiskey trend really came about from you know, farmers with excessive rye starting to distill, and it wasn't long before, you know, these distilleries were producing five and six million gallons a year, and I'm not talking 2020, I'm talking pre-1920. Oh, know, absolutely. I mean, there was, the Pennsylvania of, was, was the largest uh, supplier of, of, of whiskey uh, before, um, you know, before Kentucky got to the size where they are, so... But Pennsylvania has a very deep history of uh, making whiskey, and, and some of the premier brands in the country 100 years ago, or let's say now 104 years ago, before Prohibition, they were um, uh, they were Pennsylvania brands, and it was you know we're, so we're we're very proud to to bring that tradition back to Pennsylvania, both as Dad's Hat and and several other of the, the folks across the country or across the state making making excellent products. Uh, both whiskeys and and brandies, which were also very, uh, you know, apple brandies, for example, very very traditional Pennsylvania product for a long time. Absolutely, you know, rye whiskey. It's funny people who don't know this history, but you know, we literally had you know the whiskey rebellion when the government came in. I want to say that was eighteen seventy one somewhere, eighteen seventy one, where the government came in and tried to you know they imposed a tax on yeah. whiskeys yeah. and, and you know the the farmers wanted to succeed from the state and uh and from the government you know because of that and, and what all happened about that so you know rye whiskey was a was a great thing and you pay tribute to that here in this state not only you know you do that but you you are so sustainable you get your bottles locally you you know your rye and so for our listeners who don't know rye whiskey if i'm correct it straighten out if i'm not needs to be 51 percent rye you're yeah, eighty percent. Yeah, you're you're the best. You're eighty percent and I'm remaining twenty percent. Five of that, if I if I'm correct, is actually a rye malt. So you're really heavily, you know, based on rye and it's a beautiful product and anybody who's never had that hat, you know, needs to go to the liquor store or better take a trip down to Bristol and get it. You know, it's it's a, a fabulous product. But you know, your support of the farmers and God, you know, from my lips to God's ears, without farmers, we'd all be, you know, naked, hungry, and sober. So, you know, <laughs> I love what you're doing for the local farmers and, and doing all that because that's so important. Yeah, we're happy to you? do it. We have, we have a great relationship with our, the farm we work with up in Regalsville, Pennsylvania, Meadowbrook Farms. 
in the Meese family. They do a, a fantastic job growing a really high quality product for us. Yeah, and you, and you, you know, you consume so much of it because of that. But you also built where you're at, or you you know, took over a great property in Bristol Borough, which is just an up and coming area for, you know, artisans of all types. To pay a yeah. little homage to one of the great distilleries that was in the state of Pennsylvania, that you know, kind of was right down the road, if I'm corrected, like Ben Salem, because I grew up in that area, so I remember where the site was. But, you know, probably one of the greatest, you know, rye whiskey distilleries was right there in, in, uh, in you know, Eddington area or, you know, Ben Salem. And you built that yeah, area it, with a purpose. It was called, it, well, the name of the distillery was the Philadelphia Pure Rye Whiskey Company, which was uh, open until, uh, until Prohibition. And uh, if you come to our distillery in our tasting room, we actually have an old drawing from an insurance document uh, that shows that distillery uh, in, as it stood in 1894. So it was, a, you know, again, one of the many large, important distillers located across the state of Pennsylvania was right there. So how did you really get into, tell me shortly and briefly, how did you get into making rye whiskey? Like, what caught you and said, you know, this is what we're going to do? Well, I, I grew up in a, in a tavern out in western Pennsylvania. My grandfather started as a speakeasy. He was a rye whiskey drinker. He drank rye whiskey from a this uh, 100 years ago or 105 years ago from a distillery that's located right near my hometown. And uh, so he always drank rye whiskey, even until he was 95 years old. It was his favorite drink. And um, so I had that sort of in my head. And there was a, uh, an article in the New York Times in 2006 that mentioned the fact that rye whiskey was going to make a comeback because it had really gone down quite a bit. And that sort of caught my eye. And I met, talked to John Cooper, my business partner, and said, um, you know, wouldn't it be fun to bring rye whiskey back to Pennsylvania? Because at the time, <clears throat> there was nobody making rye whiskey in PA. So we decided to, we, at first it was kind of a joke, and then we decided to get serious about it. In 2009, we looked around and built a business plan, and by 2011, we were operating at the facility there in Bristol. <laughs> well, again, your love of sustainability, your bar that's in the place is actually built for wood recycled from the packing crates from your still. So you are taking everything you can and, and repurposing it and keeping it, you know, better for the environment and better for the state of Pennsylvania. So, you know, kudos to you. In short, if you can, in the next minute or so before we wrap this up, you know, try to give our listeners a difference who don't know the difference between you know, rye, bourbon, and scotch. And rye and bourbon, so being close to both, you know, American oak tar barrels. But, you know, what, from a flavor profile, what sets rye apart from bourbon? Well, okay, so those, of course, all, all three of those are whiskeys. Scotch is, is made with barley. Uh, and uh, uh, bourbon is made primarily with corn. And rye whiskey, of course, is made primarily from rye grain. And people describe the differences between bourbon and rye mostly as, Bourbon tends to be a more oily, a little sweeter, a little fruitier, uh, coming from the corn, uh, the f fermented corn, and the rye tends to be a bit drier, a little spicier, <clears throat> and um, and that's why uh, rye was so popular as the as the original Manhattan and old fashioned cocktail component because it balances so well with the other ingredients. So it's it's a drier, spicier uh, 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 drink than the bourbon, which is a little little more oily, a little uh, more a little more sweet. So, I mean, both excellent, uh, you know, uh, choices, but um, distinct in those, in those ways. 
it, I, I have a bourbon drink because it's high nature. And I have a wonderful collection of bourbons. But I've been finding myself really going in and, and switching over to rise a lot now. And absolutely perfect for Manhattan. Is, you know, nothing like a, a rye Manhattan. And, and just, you know, I like that. It does really well with like cheeses and certain foods too. You know, bourbon's great with barbecue. I love rye with you know some of the savory items like cheese and things like that. If I go out, I could get a good rye and have it with a cheese course and things oh, like yeah. that. So it's, it's, it's a wonderful mix and things like that. So, how do people find out more about both the guild and? That's at where can we reach out, follow you on social media, so on and so forth. Well, uh, the PA Distillers Guild for the time being, we don't have a social media presence, but we do have a website that is padistillersguild.com. And that website is a bit, um, right now, it's, it's we're rebuilding it because, as I said, the past two years we've been on a bit of a hiatus. So we're, we're just now reengaged uh, to start rebuilding that to, to provide a lot more information to people in Pennsylvania and, and elsewhere to learn more about the distillers across the state of Pennsylvania. And um, Dad's Hat, we, we, uh, we of course, have our website, which is, which is uh, dadshatride.com. And we are on uh, social media um, with our handle is at Dad's Hat Rye. So you'll find us on Instagram, and uh, we have a Facebook page and, and on Twitter as well. So we, you know, we're, we're out there. But right now the PA Guild, uh, the website will give you some information, but it needs – it needs some work, and we've engaged with a company in Philadelphia called Signature Communications, who's working with us to to rebuild it and to add a lot more information that will be useful to uh, both the distillers the themselves, but also uh, people in in the in, around the state and, and around the country who want to learn more about the, what we're doing here in, in Pennsylvania. Well, thank you for joining us, Herman, and we would love to have you back. Oh, I'd love to come by and and. Uh, Feel free to let us know when you want to stop by the distillery. We're happy to uh, show you around. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you very much, Herman. It was a great pleasure. See you, Dean. Bye-bye. Amorous Pollock, introduce us to your fabulous guests. Welcome to our show. We would like to introduce you to Eli Culp, who is one of the co-owners of High Street Hospitality Group. And he is a, like, prestigious chef who is a James Beard finalist. And Eli, welcome to our show. Hey, how are you? Uh, thanks for having me. No problem. Thank you for joining us. Um, mm -hmm. You have quite the interesting story. And I mean, as far as accolades are concerned, you were building yourself up and won a lot of awards, a lot of prestige. You know, everyone was writing about you. Um, but you started out in... Um, I believe, by studying in Washington State. Yes, at the Culinary Institute <laughs> of America. Sorry about that. Oh well, that was sorry. That was in New York. I, I originally started in Washington State, where I grew up. Uh, but yeah, I did. I did attend the uh, Culinary Institute of America up in Hyde Park, New York. Um, but that was probably about eight years after I really started my career. Which just sounds weird, but long story. <laughs> <laughs> That's a long story. Um, and I know that you also worked at one of the like high demand um, places in New York City as, as well. And I'm I feel like I'm going to mess up the name, but Teresi Italian Specialties. Yeah, I mean Teresi Italian Specialties was this uh, 
actually it was very high demand, uh, but very small. It was a tiny little spot in the um, sort of Italian area, little Italy, I guess you would say, uh, in New York. Um, it was on Mulberry Street in Prince. It was a 20-something seat restaurant that uh, was in very high demand. That was actually the last place I worked at in um, in New York before coming to Philadelphia. And, and when you came to Philadelphia, you, you met Ellen, you started working at Fork as the executive chef there. Um, and, you know, yes, correct. yeah, and you were working there for a little while before you and she had sat down. And I think you guys decided to close Fork for a short period of time and, and relaunch it. Right, right. right. So uh, basically what happened is that it was 15 years, Fork had been there for uh, 15 years, and it just happened to be the year I was coming down. It was also uh, the chef, the previous chef had left. And um, so, yeah, we, actually before I started, we really sort of worked together and, um, you know, in the few months leading up to me even moving down here, and and she um, she put a bunch of money into sort of uh, updating Fork, uh, the decor, the style, and everything. We really sort of sort of landed on the style that we were looking for. And by the time I moved down here, I think it was uh, within a few weeks, we reopened Fork, a uh, brand new menu and everything. Obviously it was about four months of planning for all this, but um, it was in a short period of time, we sort of redid the restaurant and, um, you know, sort of relaunched it. And I think it was like around October of 2012. And how shortly thereafter did you start construction on um, High Street on Market? Yeah, it was actually quite quickly. Um, when I first saw the SpaceX door, which was, uh, it was called Fork, et cetera. It was sort of a, um, just morning and lunchtime, uh, kind of a grab and go, you know, really nice upscale, um, you know, salads and things like that. Um, but it, it wasn't, it was sitting empty at nighttime other than a couple of private dining situations that would happen there. And um, my first thought, I was like, listen, I'm, I've had a dream of, of, you know, having a sandwich shop uh, that's what actually brought me to Teresi. i love the concept there and um you know sandwiches and deli morning and lunch and you know we'll do like a really sort of fun contemporary and creative really creative menu at nighttime uh and we decided to go with it and we stopped that one and remodeled that in 2013 uh, a little bit less than a year after i first got to fork and um, by september of 2013 we we launched we, we relaunched it as High Street on Market, which is all day bakery, uh, lunch, dinner, and um, uh, breakfast concept. Which took off. I mean, I, I felt like everywhere I was looking, I saw something about you guys um, in the news. So yeah, I, I was having a moment there. <laughs> and and you did. You got written up like everywhere. You know, there were articles. You want to um, prestige like um, awards as far as you know. <clears throat> Sorry, as far as magazines are concerned, like Bon Appetit um, wrote about you and in, in the article, they even um, because I think that one of the biggest things that matters in order to create the beast that is a successful restaurant is to be very um, supportive of your staff. And in the Bon Appetit magazine, they, one of your quotes is that you ultimately wanted to inspire your team to do what you can't. Meaning, you know, you would like for them to to aspire to go forward and work harder. Um, and I feel like w the way that you inspire other people 
is is outstanding <laughs> and the way that you yeah know, well i mean you can't do it on your own i mean you can be the best chef in the world but if you can't you know keep a team of people happy and and motivated and and excited to be there and you know that's something you have to be really um really aware of and be mindful and really uh you know put everything you can into it just as much as you know creating great food and great recipes and beautiful plates and great service like it has to be um you know a big part of what you do exactly and that's probably why bon appetit also you know named you the best um the best new restaurant in america in 2014 yeah so they do a hot list every year and it's um they actually rank them one to um 10 i think or something like that and uh, they gave we got number two so first runner up and uh, lost out to my buddy uh, Aaron down at uh, Rose's Luxury in uh, DC, but uh, you know we still love Aaron. And uh, but yeah, it was it was quite the time. It was a lot of things really sort of coming together. The food and wine thing that happened, and and that, and it just felt like whatever we were doing was really uh, not only successful, just from con- conceptually wise. It's great to see like your idea that was in your head sort of play out nicely and if people actually care about it or like it um but it's you know also is you know a real sort of growth period for me as a chef because i was you know i was taking on more responsibilities than i ever had and and you know it just shows that the hard work and effort that you put in over the years to learn my craft or any chef in this manner that kind of strikes out on their own that all that time and spent and all those you know long days and long nights and exhausted subway rides home and all these things that you sacrificed and the holidays you missed and you know everything i mean you just sacrificed so much and to have this opportunity one day to like hopefully open a place that people actually care about right that they want to go to um, and then you develop your repertoire and your style of cooking and and you know that you know you're speaking your own language with food that's really important right a lot of chefs they they, they strike out on their own but you know they're they're almost uh, sort of regurgitating what they know versus actually creating their own language of food. And I felt like we were doing that with Fork and we were doing that with High Street. And, you know, we were doing things that hadn't been done um, really ever. Like in, in a lot of senses, we were that unique. Um, but definitely in Philadelphia, I think people really responded to that uh, creativity because you have to do creativity. But, like, creativity is important, but you have to do it in a genuine way that people really want to uh to actually come and eat it right it can be as crazy as you want but if it's weird as hell you know who's gonna come and eat it <laughs> yeah so if it if it, weird, we, if it looks yeah, too we were weird sort of capturing that yeah you know? <laughs> if it looks too weird some people will you know be afraid to try it but because we all eat with our eyes first but um creativity definitely takes some finesse well, funny story i mean in the beginning we the nighttime the daytime was very successful when we go like the bakery and the breads we're doing creative breads that like were like basically how would you look at bread if you were a chef right that was the idea so we were like doing you know grilled onion bread and we we're doing corn like on a dama which is like sort of became our signature and you know corn and molasses from a local um granary from castle valley mills which is at, at that point we were the first real restaurant to be using them now they're everywhere so and we had great bakers we had alex bois and sam kincaid and the team was ridiculous who we had behind High Street, the most creative and hardworking team I've ever been a part of. Um, and it was really just this sort of time where, um, you know, we were 
we were then sort of had that Midas touch, uh, which was great. But at nighttime, it took a long time for people to come in there. Like we were doing fermented stuff. Like we were doing like stuff that hadn't been really done in Philadelphia. Um, you know, we had fermented broccoli rob salads and we were doing, you know, cashew butter or cashew cheeses and, you know, and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't brand new stuff that we were creating, but we, we were the ones that sort of really put it into a restaurant menu format uh, in Philadelphia at the time. So um, the nighttime, it took a long time for people to actually trust us because we were doing things in, in Philly that hadn't been done before and that weren't sort of um, typically uh, flavor combinations and techniques that, that people had really um, tried to open a restaurant behind. Now, um, because of your popularity, you guys started to look into expanding into New York City. Um, right. And, and you were going between New York and Philadelphia a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, am, I know that you talk about this on a lot of news channels, on, a lot of, on your podcast, you've talked about it. Um, but, you, you know, you were unfortunately one of the people that was on the Amtrak train when it crashed in Port Richmond. Um, now right. that affected you in a big way, <laughs> right. um, physically, right. but I feel like even though it, it, it impacted you physically, like you still sojourned on, um, and that's something where not a lot of people, you know, get to that point, you know, like there's a lot of people who would be in your position and probably give, you know, give up, but you, you kept going. Right. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I, I suffered a, a high-level spinal cord injury. I currently use a wheelchair, and I don't have use of my hands anymore. Um, you know, I can't, like, grab things because I, I basically I'm paralyzed, right? Yeah. So I'm paralyzed from the chest down, as they say, um, which, obviously, catastrophic injury. These are things that, you know, only happen, thank God, to a very, very small number of people. Um, and it sort of wipes away all of your independence. Like you're the most independent person in the world. And all of a sudden you have to rely on people that basically keep you alive. Like I have, a, I have women, I have a great group of women that, you know, make sure that I can do things like, you know, basically spend time with my kid, right. They help me get dressed. They help me sort of do all these things throughout the day. Uh, make sure I have food if I'm eating at home, all these things. So like your independence is taken away. Like I'm not joking around. Like you are vulnerable as hell. You basically revert back to a child level sense of independence, which is a hard thing for anybody to do, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, but I had a team that was depending on me, right? Like, not only was my family depending on me, my kid and my wife at the time, and, you know, not only were they depending, but I had a team of chefs that we had three restaurants that you include a kitchen in there, which we um, have up in Britain now Square, like, and that were looking to me for direction, right? Like, I am you know, sort of culinary vision, uh, visionary behind what's going on, right? Yeah. They don't, they know the food, like they're really good cooks, but they're not the ones that sort of develop the, the, the idea behind it in full. You know, they all, they all had some level of, you know, um, contribution to it, but, you know, I was, you know, I was sort of the one behind it. So not only that, but we were opening, we were currently opening a restaurant in, we're starting to, the construction on a restaurant in New York uh, High Street on Hudson. So we already signed that lease. Uh, we were already in the uh, design phase. We had been for a while. We just started some demolition on the on the space we leased. Um, so there, things were going like I didn't really have an opportunity to really slow down, uh, which was a good thing for sure. I mean, God forbid you you, you know 
you know, you're sort of an employee somewhere and you can't do the work anymore and you're just stuck. Like one saving grace was I was also an owner, right? a partner in this company was uh, Ellen. And, you know, that doesn't break just because you get injured. You know what I mean? So you're still part of the company um, in that capacity. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and you did find a way to, to, to work with your fellow chefs, um, and continue to direct them. Um, and, you know, and I know that, you know, you did visit that new location, um, High Street on Hudson after Mm -hmm. the, you know, after the, the train, Mm -hmm. train crash, um, Mm -hmm. and that you are like, have continued to be a key component because yes, you have all of this, you have a huge team that relies on you and, you know, and obviously still your family too, um, and your son Dylan, um, who, you know, I'm sure is, is always there by your side being probably your biggest cheerleader, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, but you've done a lot of stuff where you've had to pivot. Like, I know that at some point in time, I think, fork um lost their you guys lost your executive chef um around Mm -hmm. 2019 and you actually went in um and and sub subbed as the executive chef and you know and this is after the crash so like your inspiration probably within that that realm is is probably inspired some of the the line cooks and in the you know the chefs that were working with you um like hey he can do it so can i well, I mean, you would hope so, right? I think, um, you know, that time that you talked of, you know, it was like a four-month uh, window there that I sort of held it down while we hired a new chef. And, you know, and it was, you know, it was a great time. It was the first time that I had um, sort of ran a kitchen, if you will, besides my company um, being in a leadership role uh, since I got hurt. So it was fun sort of, you know, adapting to that and the way we sort of, you know, uh, I can't physically cook the food versus, you know, I have to have somebody rely on, like, talk about the technique and how we're going to develop the dish. And, you know, we, we go and do it, and it's a real sort of team effort. And, you know, they're helping me taste things as we go, and I'm giving them pointers on sort of, you know, their technique or whatever. So, you know, yeah, I mean, it just showed that it proved to me, you know, an opp- it was an opportunity for me to, to prove myself that I still had that ability if and when I wanted it, to, uh, wanted to bring it back. Um you know, is that, was I as effective? No, 100% no. Um, you know, but the fact of the matter is you adapt, you find ways, uh, you pivot, right? Big word, last <laughs> couple of years. Um, this is pivoting before pivoting was cool um, with COVID. But uh, regardless, it was, it, was, it was a learning um, phase for me. And I think as, as any human, we, we're constantly learning whether we know it or not. And um, you know, I think if you put yourself out there in those, in those, and you know, not shy away from those challenges, but figure out how to adapt, you know, I think the parable is you typically find a way to adapt. So, you know, I think for me, it's, you know, it's, it's something I still love to do. I cook at home a lot. If I'm not out of a restaurant, uh, we're cooking at home and, you know, there's still this creative process that happens even in my home kitchen. So Eli, one of the things that was really instrumental for you I think in, in healing, I could be very wrong, but was the fact that you also found some joy and you know some support for yourself by reaching out and helping others. And one of the ways you did that was to start a podcast that was called mm-hmm. Chef. And 
very different podcast to the fact that it really focused on the deep needs of the hospitality and you know culinary industry, what our lives were day to day, the struggles that we had, and you know the hours that we were putting in, and the difficulties we faced. And all. Can you tell us a little bit about you know how that came about, and, and you know Chef itself, and then we could you know touch into your second one, which right. is just much lighter and different. But Chef is is such a key thing. Yeah, so the name's a little bit longer than that, the Chef Radio Podcast. I don't want to, you know, state I'm running somebody else's podcast. I don't know who the chef is. But, um, but yeah, the, um, you know, something that I came across was the um, this idea of doing a podcast. And since I had been injured, this is probably going like, you know, um, four and a half years into it roughly, uh, one of the hard things I had – I was finding was connecting to the industry still. Um, I'm not in the kitchen every day. I'm not going to events. I'm not, you know, asking another chef if, you know, at 8:30 at night if they have if they have some salmon I can borrow because we just ran out of it and we have 20 orders on the board. You know, like those sort of interactions that you have on a on a daily basis with either your team of chefs or other chefs around you. I just wasn't able to in my mind, keep the connections going as easily as before. So one of them was, okay, well, what about a podcast? So we started that podcast and, you know, it's been good. I've, I've, I've you know, it's done exactly what I had hoped it would, which is kind of reconnecting to the industry. And, you know, you, I, it, I've always been somebody that I need, I need to have a mission, right? So I have a mission of, you know, starting a company. I have a mission of supporting my employees, being a good chef, being a good mentor, all those things. But, you know, after losing some of that, I was like, okay, I got to figure out what the hell my mission is now in life. I need to find something. And, um, you know, is podcast and media person my end goal? No, definitely not. Uh, but I enjoyed doing it and it was allowing me to reconnect with chefs, you know, in the studio and talking about sort of what makes them tick and what makes me tick. And, you know, and, and it sort of became this really nice um, blend of inform, you know, in, information you know, about the chef, their background, um, talking about sort of what makes, what made them and what currently, you know, inspires them, but also an opportunity for us just to sort of shoot the, well, you know what, and um, just talk about the industry. You know what I mean? Like, just wanted to talk about what's going on and sort of what's our, our big concerns and hopefully other chefs and cooks and owners and just people interested in the food world, hopefully they, they get some information out of it and um, you know, it's a, it's a two-way street because I'm learning and also I'm being able to show other people uh, or give other people information. Well, as that led to a little bit of a lighter, different podcast that you started, which is just equally as wonderful, Delicious City. Tell us a little bit right. about that. Yeah, so Delicious City was sort of born out of this idea that, you know, while I am, you know, sort of allowing chefs to tell their stories and not just chefs, but cheesemakers or sommeliers or, um, you know, business owners to tell their story. Um, and, you know, it seems like other people are interested in hearing them. Um, you know, it seemed like a sort of a natural next step to say, okay, what, what can we do next? Again, it's me sort of needing to grow, I think is the sort of underlying sort of um, story here. I always want to continue to get better at something by doing it. Um, and we said, okay, what about 
something more along, you know, the current events of the industry, right? So inter informative. So, you know, where where somebody should eat, what's closing, what's opening, uh, what we've had. So it's me and two co-hosts, uh, Marissa Magnata and Sarah Maylano. Sarah is a, a really good local journalist, food journalist uh, specifically. And Marissa is just an enthusiast, a food enthusiast, and she she works for WMMR. She's one of the producers there. And we just have a good time and talk about what's going on in the industry, around the industry, where we're eating. And we have some other sort of fun components in there. Like we have a local comedian kind of doing comedian type things. So it's, it's good. It's a lot of fun. Well, thank you. And both of them were absolutely fabulous podcasts. And I know, well, you know we don't have, often have other you know, podcasters joined us. And, and it's really wonderful to have you. And, and I think both of them have been, well, I, I know, you know, the the first has been really supportive to a lot of people in the industry because we do spend so many hours in a very close community that, you know, when we have an opportunity of downtime, whether we're driving or doing whatever, to listen to somebody else talk about what's going on in their world and what's going on in the industry, it's so important to us because one thing about chefs and people in our industry is we are 100% vested. This is what we do you right. know, 24-7. So, um, yeah, and, and it makes you feel like you're not the only one out there going through these issues, right? So you're able to absolutely. kind of get that, even though it's maybe indirect and we're not talking directly to you, you're saying, oh, okay, I, I, I'm not the only one that feels that way or I'm not the only one that had to go through that or I'm not the only one trying to do this to make a difference. All very important things to keep us all going day to day. Otherwise, we would burn out so much faster. So, you know, not only great, you know, podcast to listen to, but really to serve a purpose. And, and you know, Delicious City, uh, you know, I, I just love listening to your podcast and, and getting what's going on in the world. It's, you know, a little like ours, a little different, but, you know, we're uh -huh. all both trying to share what we know and, and – drive people to great businesses and that's why we have somebody like you on who has such an inspirational story. I mean I appreciate you know, if your story cannot motivate people who are, you know, struggling in their own darkness. You went through that. Uh, you know, we touched on your story a little bit through this whole situation. But you know what what I think people need to know is, you know, this was not something that you just came through this and it was all, you know, candy canes and roses and Whatever, you no, know, definitely were, not. Definitely not. You know, terrible hard days, and and you know, you kept, you know, looking, you know, for the positive every day, and I think the rest of the world needs to do that and focus on that. So you, my man, are a great inspiration. And I'm going to give it back well, to you, Thank you. I appreciate you saying that, and I, I think often, you know, people give advice too easily. You know, like, oh, just or you know, look on the bright side, and listen, it's not always easy. It's not always easy to do that. And people who go through depression and sacrifice and all these things that, um, you know, sometimes you don't want to hear, but, you know, if you keep putting the work in, you just keep moving forward as hard as it can be some days. Um, so maybe just take a break. You don't have to, you know what I mean? But uh, eventually just keep putting your ducks in a row and, you know, good things will hopefully, uh, you know, they, they should come around. So, I always say when I'm modest as a chef, it's hard work always, 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 always. You say always many times, it always pays off. It always pays off. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And respect to you, buddy. <laughs> so I actually, um, with all the, every, you know, all the direction you've been able to give in the kitchen, um, have you ever thought to create a cookbook? <laughs> I've been asked many times. Um, I, I have denied that, or I have, have um, uh, I would say, politely declined that, um, that invite over the years because I just think it's a ton of work and it's a ton of time and it's, you know what I mean? It's not that it couldn't be done. Don't get me wrong. I'm, like I said, I'm a fan of hard work, but <laughs> I think as a chef, uh, I was just like, I don't have the time for this. I don't have the time for this. Is it appropriate now? I don't know. I mean, maybe someday somebody will be like, hey, let's do a cookbook, but it's not something I'm really seeking out. Let's put it that way. I was just curious because, you know, with, you know, every, like all of your talents, it, you know, being able to bring your talents into to people's homes via a cookbook would be an amazing feat. Um, so I was just curious about yeah, that. Yeah, it would be an amazing feat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now we are unfortunately running out of time. So how can people get in touch with you? How can people find you on the web? How can they go to, how can they, yeah, where will sure. they find high street, um, hospitality group locations? Yep. So you can find high street hospitality group locations. Uh, just go to either high street hospitality.com. I think it's abbreviated SP. Uh, and then, or you can go to fork restaurant, you know, uh, I started on both High Street Philly now. Uh, any of these places, you'll find you know other ways to find us. Uh, you can also go to um, social media, right? Instagram is probably my go-to uh, to find out a lot about the show, what we're doing. So let's say update, maybe some cooking on there. Uh, but yeah, just look at Eli Culp, one word at sign in front of it. So at Eli Culp. All right. Thank you for joining us, Eli. Yeah, uh, thank you very much, Eli. (laughs) No problem. And to all of our listeners out there, you can find us on phillyrestaurantreviews.com and you can find me at ARPolicus. And you can email me if you would like to either be a sponsor of the show or if you would like to be on the show at ARPolicus at gmail.com. Gene? You can find me across social media at ibfoodie2 or at Blum, or you can email me directly at ibfoodie2yahoo.com. That's I-B-F-O-O-D-I-E, the number two at yahoo.com. Have an absolutely fabulous week, everyone. Enjoy. Enjoy.